I'm Frances O'Rourke Dow, welcoming you to the Quilt Fiction Podcast and the annual Friendship Album Christmas Story. In Starry Night, we find ourselves in 1919, where newlywed Emmeline Grangerfield is learning that Milton Falls' smart set doesn't consider quilting the smart or sophisticated thing to do. This special Christmas podcast is going out over the traditional Quilt Fiction podcast channel. As a reminder, we're still sharing weekly audio stories on our members-only Quilt Fiction Story Guild podcast. Visit quiltfiction.com for information about how to join the Story Guild for as little as $6 a month. Speaking of the Story Guild, to celebrate the holiday, we've already sent members a free quilt block pattern to accompany the story. We'd like to share this pattern by Patty Dudek of Elm Street Quilts with you as well. Visit quiltfiction.com and sign up for our email list to get your copy today. Thanks so much for listening. And now, on with the story. Starry Night, Emmeline, 1919, A Friendship Album Christmas Story What a glorious day, Emmeline Grangerfield declared as she and her husband made their way up Walnut Street on Christmas morning. I'm so glad we decided to walk to your parents. Thomas brushed away the small flotilla of snowflakes that had collected on his collar. I'd hardly call 25 degrees in a near blizzard a glorious day for a stroll. I think we both know why we're walking instead of driving, and it has nothing to do with the weather. Emmeline gave a careful twirl. The snow had only just begun to fall, and the walk was clear, but still a girl didn't want to stumble and cause her new velour plush coat to come close to touching the ground. Oh, it was the most wonderful thing in the world, with its button-trimmed empire train and wolf fur on the collar, sleeves, and hem. My dear, it has everything to do with the weather, she argued. If it were a languid summer's afternoon, could I show off my new coat to the entire neighborhood? My new coat given to me by my new and terribly thoughtful husband. I believe that's my point, dear, and I'm hardly new. We've been married since May. Our first Christmas together, and it's been marvelous since the moment we woke up. Thomas smiled and shook his head. You weren't feeling that well when we woke up, as I recall. It wasn't until you opened your present that your spirits rose. Must you contradict me at every turn? Emmeline replied, trying to sound cross and failing abysmally. How could she be anything but elated, draped as she was in this, this dream coat? As soon as she unwrapped it, she regretted that they decided to forego First Presbyterian's Christmas morning church service. How very grand to have shown up in the coat's velvety folds. Emmeline could just imagine how the girls from Milton Falls' smart set, 
Millicent Clover, Francis Mulholland, Clara Obershane, and the rest, would react. How their jaws would have fallen open to their chests like Jacob Marley's at the sight of her. Emmeline had arrived in Milton Falls from Emporia, Kansas, in May, with four trunks worth of clothing, all of it perfectly lovely, but perhaps not the latest, latest thing. She'd been a bit taken aback by how fashionable the wealthier young women in Milton Falls were. It was, after all, a mill town in the middle of farm country. What she came to learn was that mill towns were river towns, and news, yes, even fashion news, traveled faster up and down rivers than it did across the plains. Moreover, Millicent Clover's mother was French, well, French-Canadian, and naturally she knew all about the latest styles. The members of Millicent's crowd had looked upon Emmeline with highly critical eyes when she appeared on Thomas Grangerfield's arm the previous spring. Every part of her had been found wanting, her clothes, her hair, her manners. Emmeline had only two defenders when she joined the Grangerfield family. Thomas, of course, and Thomas's younger sister, 13-year-old Florence. Florence may have been the only female in Milton Falls who found Emily worthy of her attention. I'd give anything to have hair like yours, she'd said within five minutes of their introduction, and a figure like yours as well. At the time, Emmeline had been taken aback. She hadn't been raised to comment on others' appearances and was somewhat startled to have her own looks evaluated in such an open manner. But it wasn't long before Emmeline began to seek out Florence's company for that very reason. After a round of luncheons and teas and Milton Falls' finer homes, ostensibly to introduce Emmeline to the Grangerfield's friends, but clearly meant to give the society ladies, especially the younger ones, a chance to appraise the newcomer and find her wanting, Emily knew that it would be some time, if ever, before she passed muster with anyone other than an enthusiastic young girl. Returning home after these soirees to the clearly adoring Florence had been a balm. They must have simply loved you, Emmeline, Florence would declare. How could they not when you're such a perfect rose, especially in that dress? I can't believe you made it yourself. All those tucks and pleats. Did you tell them about your career as a newspaper reporter? Did you mention the beautiful quilts you make? These conversations usually took place in Emmeline's sitting room, which was connected to the guest room in the Grangerfield's large Walnut Street home, where Emmeline was staying until the wedding. How grand to have one's own sitting room! How marvelous to have a future sister-in-law so clearly dazzled by the dresses that others had recently dismissed as simple and sweet. What on earth had those girls been talking about? Emmeline had fumed to herself on more than one occasion. Even if they weren't the latest fashion, there was nothing simple about Emmeline's clothes. It had taken her ages to make her Georgette crepe blouse with its hemstitched sailor collar and tiny pearl buttons. 
And how many hours had gone into sewing the velvet and taffeta sleeveless overblouse pound with silk thread and silk-covered buttons? Everyone in Emporia had fallen over backwards in stunned admiration at the sight of Emmeline's sartorial constructions. But in Milton Falls, only Florence seemed to appreciate them. She'd put on a brave face at the time, and her reports to Florence made it sound as though she'd been the belle of the ball at every gathering. But of course, Emmeline would never mention her years at the Daily Kansan. Most of the girls she met in Milton Falls hadn't gone to college. There seemed to be a general agreement that college only served to coarsen a woman. I'll let my husband do my thinking for me. Cornelia Davenport had declared at one event when she heard that Emmeline was a bona fide college graduate. I only care to ponder the pretty things that life has to offer. Emmeline had laughed gaily, keeping to herself the thought that A. Cornelia Davenport was a bit of a simpleton, and B. Not everyone had the good fortune that allowed them to barricade their minds so that only thoughts of pretty things could make their way inside. While Emmeline's Aunt Margaret had tutored her for years on manners and social mores, so that Emmeline appeared to have enjoyed a charmed life from the moment of her birth, she was, in fact, a shop owner's daughter, and she'd been raised in a neighborhood that no one would consider genteel. Growing up, Emmeline had seen many things guaranteed to trouble one's mind for weeks, if not years. As far as mentioning her quilts to her new, so-called friends, Emmeline knew better. While it was fashionable to embroider and cross-stitch in Milton Falls High Society, making quilts was considered rather common, something that pioneer women had done because there were no shops to order bed covers from out on the plains and rolling prairies. If you lived in town and had money, why, naturally, you didn't make such homely things as quilts. You didn't make things that people would actually use. But Emmeline was devoted to making quilts and had been since she was ten. She loved the complicated geometry of quilt blocks, loved challenging herself when composing a quilt's color palette, loved how her mind eased after only a few minutes of sitting with her sewing. During her college years, she'd only been able to devote a few minutes a day to her quilt-making, usually right before bedtime. But upon her arrival in Milton Falls, she'd had hours to quilt away, especially after the wedding, when the invitations to luncheon and tea had slowed to an occasional half-hearted note requesting her presence at some charity event. She had even more time to devote to her quilts once she began having her dresses made at Martha Leary's sewing shop. Oh, the joy of having one's dresses made! Emmeline had never experienced anything quite like it. You simply found an ensemble you adored in the pages of Modern Priscilla or Ladies' Home Journal and brought it to the shop where you had your measurements taken and then, with Martha's help, decided on the perfect fabric and notions. Martha had a whole crew of women who worked for her out of their homes, and sometimes it only took a week before you received a note asking you to come in for a fitting. A skilled seamstress herself, Emmeline recognized the prodigious gifts of the women who sewed for Martha, 
and swore from the moment she tried on her first leery creation that she would never sew for herself again. Not that she couldn't make such a dress, only that it was so much simpler to have someone else do it for her. Emmeline's heart had pounded the first time Martha led her to the fitting room in the back of the shop, and then it beat double time when she saw a quilt stretched across a frame in the corner of the workroom. Oh, it had been a glorious thing, constructed out of New York beauty blocks made from reds and yellows. Emmeline had done her best not to react with too much enthusiasm. She didn't want to develop a reputation as a quilt lover, after all, or worse, a quilter. Instead, she offered a subdued, Oh, that's lovely. A New York beauty is such a difficult pattern to construct. Martha Leary's response was as warm as Emmeline's had been cool. Oh, didn't it take me a year to make all the blocks for that one? I can't believe it's finally on the frame. Several ladies who love quilting as much as I do are coming in on Saturday to quilt it. We have a regular Saturday meeting, as a matter of fact. We keep it quiet, just so we don't attract more folks than the back room could hold. She paused and gave Emmeline a long look. You wouldn't care to join us, would you, Mrs. Grangerfield? Oh, no, I couldn't. Emmeline hesitated a moment, then continued. Unless you need an extra hand. You've been so kind to me since my arrival in Milton Falls. I'd like to return the favor, if I could. And I do happen to have some experience with quilt making. Oh, that would be a kindness, it would indeed, Martha replied, the tone of her voice making it clear she understood that this would be no favor on Emmeline's part. It was as though she knew Emmeline would show up the following Saturday like a thirsty woman who'd finally stumbled upon water, and that she'd show up on the Saturday after that, and the one after that, too. Still, in the months to come, Martha Leary was always careful to behave as though Emmeline's attendance at her quilting bee was akin to an act of charity on the young woman's part. Oh, it's beneath her, really, Martha would tell anyone who asked if it was true that the younger Mrs. Grangerfield was part of the sewing shop's Saturday gathering. But she saw a need and met it. That's the mark of a true Christian woman, if you ask me. Pays no heed to others' opinions just shows up when help is required. We give so many of our quilts to charity, you see. Young Mrs. Grangerfield has a special place in her heart for widows and orphans. Of course she wants to help. When word of Mrs. Leary's heartfelt soliloquy got back to Emmeline via her in-law's maid, Daisy, she supposed it was true enough. She herself was an orphan of sorts, her mother having passed away when Emmeline was three, and she'd always felt as though making quilts had filled part of the empty space inside of her that her mother had left behind. Emmeline had tried to teach Florence how to quilt, but Florence was too fidgety, too here and there and all over the place to settle down with a needle and thread. Still, she seemed to enjoy pausing now and again to look over Emmeline's shoulder as she stitched, whether in the parlor off the Grangerfield's grand foyer, 
or in Emmeline's living room after she and Thomas had moved into their own home on Oak Street. Once Florence learned that Emmeline was working on a Christmas quilt for Thomas, she insisted that her sister-in-law use the parlor as her sewing room. It was clear that Florence liked the notion of subterfuge, a secret shared only by herself and her beautiful new sister-in-law. You could come to the back door, where I'd be waiting to let you in, Florence offered. Perhaps we could work out a secret knock. Oh, that's awfully kind of you, darling, Emmeline had said when Florence first suggested it. But Thomas pays no attention to my quilting. He has a thousand other things on his mind. But working on the quilt in secret is half the fun of it, don't you see? Florence had pouted. Besides, I've seen how Thomas looks at you when you're not attending to someone or something other than him. Why, it's as though he's drinking you in. I think he sees more than you realize. Maybe he won't put together that you're making a quilt for him, but he'll notice the colors and maybe even the pattern. So when he opens the package on Christmas morning, it will all look awfully familiar to him, and what kind of surprise is that? Emmeline had to admit that the girl had a point. Besides, she enjoyed the walk from Oak Street to Walnut, especially on late autumn afternoons, the leaves exquisite shades of crimson and gold, the sky high and blue. Her mother-in-law was rarely home at that time of day, or if she was, she was upstairs resting before dinner. This suited Emmeline, as Mother Grangerfield was an intimidating figure, stern and exacting. She seemed accepting of Emmeline, if not entirely approving. Well, she approved of Emmeline's good looks. The family line could use an infusion of beauty, was how she put it. But she didn't approve of her daughter-in-law's manners and was constantly correcting her. One holds one's teacup like so, she would say, and then demonstrate the correct positioning of thumb and fingers. Emmeline quickly tired of these lessons, especially since she knew there wasn't a thing wrong with the way she held her teacup, or tilted her hat, or folded her handkerchief. Though she always expressed her gratitude for her mother-in-law's concern. But since Mother Grangerfield was unlikely to be about when she came by in the afternoon, Emmeline could enjoy her little visits to Florence's parlor. She only stayed for an hour or so. She needed to be home in time to supervise her cook, Cora, in the preparation of Thomas's dinner, although Cora, an excellent cook, needed no supervision. Still, Emmeline felt it her job to wander into the kitchen several times between the hours of five and six-thirty to lift pot-lids and open the oven door to sniff at the roast. These rounds did not endear her to Cora, but as far as Emmeline could determine, having one's household help hold you in mild contempt was the norm, and she enjoyed being normal in at least one regard— since she was viewed as so terribly abnormal in most others. 
By mid-November, the sky's darker now, the weather more likely to carry rain or snow, Emmeline no longer enjoyed the walk as she once had. Still, she continued to look forward to her afternoons with Florence, who always cheered her, even if she would never sit still long enough to allow Emmeline to show her how to construct the simplest quilt block. The girl moved about the room as she chattered away, keeping Emmeline abreast of the latest school gossip and the news from her cotillion class, which met every Saturday morning at the Milton Falls Country Club. The fact was, after six months of living in Milton Falls, five of them as part of one of the town's most notable families, Emmeline had only a handful of friends. One of them was, of course, Florence, and the others were a secret she kept from everyone but Thomas the ladies of Martha Leary's Saturday sewing circle. Emily knew if anyone found out about her quilting life, she would forever be a social pariah, no matter how wealthy her husband or how highly regarded his family was. She'd finished the quilt top two weeks before Christmas. It looks like a night sky with that dark blue background, Florence had remarked as she studied the quilt's composition, Nine blocks, each one featuring a sharply pointed star, so that as a whole the quilt seemed to shimmer with light. You know, Thomas was always interested in astronomy, even as a boy. He knew all the constellations and tried to make me memorize them as well. Emmeline had smiled at that. Heaven help anyone who tried to teach Florence outside of the classroom. The girl got excellent marks at school, but when it came to extracurricular knowledge, her only interests were dancing, horses, and boys. It wasn't until the Saturday before Christmas that the frame at Martha Leary's shop was free and Thomas's quilt could be quilted. The women gathered in the small back room and made a party of it, singing carols, telling stories of Christmas's past, and recalling favorite feasts. It had only taken an afternoon to finish the job, and when two of the ladies held up the quilt so that Emmeline could examine it from a distance, she felt overwhelmed, not only by the quilt's beauty, and it was a beautiful quilt, but by these women who had given so freely of themselves, who had accepted her so warmly into their small circle. They were housewives mostly, some of whom took in work to make ends meet. Several of them sewed for Martha Leary, and one of them, Felicity Matson, shyly confessed one afternoon that she'd been the seamstress who had sewn the first dress Emmeline had ever ordered from Mrs. Leary's shop. Emmeline had touched her arm and told her how beautiful the stitches were, how elegant the frock was in every detail. But in her heart... She wished that Mrs. Matson hadn't revealed herself as the dress's maker. It made Emmeline feel separate from the others, none of whom could afford a dressmaker, and feeling separate from this merry band of quilters made her lonely. Yes, they were plain women, and yes, they'd never see their names mentioned in the Milton Falls Gazette Society pages, and yes, Emmeline had endured many years of her Aunt Margaret's training for the very purpose of avoiding their fate. 
Yet the time Emmeline spent stitching on quilts with those women in Martha Leary's back room, a period that would last for just a while longer until she was finally accepted as a legitimate member of society, would be the only time in those early years in Milton Falls where she truly felt at home. By the time Emmeline and Thomas reached the Grangerfield house on Walnut Street, the snow had turned into icy pellets. I suppose it's better that we didn't drive, Thomas said as he gave a ceremonial tap on the front door before opening it. I don't know how the coupe would handle icy roads. Emmeline followed her husband into the large front foyer with its lovely spiral staircase leading to the second floor. She so hated the idea of handing over her beautiful coat to the grim-faced housekeeper, Daisy. Perhaps she could come up with an excuse for wearing it inside. But no, if she said she wanted to keep her coat on because she was still chilly from her walk, Mother Grangerfield would raise an arched brow that suggested one did not comment in any way on the climate whether inside or out, and, moreover, it would be especially rude to suggest that one's host had not created for his or her guests a most comfortable milieu. Hermeline reluctantly let her coat drop from her shoulders and extracted her arms from its glorious fur-trimmed sleeves. But no daisy appeared to take it from her. It was Florence who rushed in from the parlor to greet them. It's rather topsy-turvy around here at the moment, Florence reported breathlessly. Daisy's sick with the flu and can't come in to cook. Breakfast this morning was butter, toast, and coffee. Father's in his study pouting, and Mother's in the kitchen in hysterics. A plucked goose was delivered 30 minutes ago, and she has absolutely no idea what to do with it. Who are you expecting for Christmas dinner, other than us and Harry? Emmeline asked. Florence thought for a moment. It's a small group. Great Aunt Amanda, the Clovers, elder and younger, plus Millicent's fiancé, Andrew Spinner. Oh, and Mother's cousin, John, and his wife. That doesn't sound small to me, Emmeline said. It's at least a dozen. For Mother, that's small. Her table can seat twenty. Fortunately, Daisy made a few things yesterday. She stuffed the celery with pimento cheese, plugged the olives with something or another, made the thimble cakes and paprika crackers. And she set the table. Have you seen it? It's gorgeous. Really, all that's left to do is cook the goose, make the soup, and boil the potatoes. Unfortunately, None of us has the least idea of how to do any of those things. I suppose that's the dark side of having a cook. You never learn how to cook yourself. Emmeline wasn't convinced that Daisy had ever learned to cook either, but she did know how to boil water, which made her a chef de cuisine in this household. So what's to be done? I suppose it's too late to uninvite the guests and feast on celery sticks and cake in front of the fireplace. Mother wants to send notes around the neighborhood to see if we could borrow someone else's cook, 
at least for the morning, but father says that no one will have a cook to spare, and I suppose he's right about that. Thomas puffed out his chest, put a hand on Emmeline's shoulder, and cleared his throat. My wife is a fine cook, I'll have you know. She can take charge of the kitchen. Oh, I think you're overstating the case, dear, Emmeline protested gently. The things I've made for you on Cora's day off are really awfully simple, just chops and soups, nothing you might call worthy of a feast. You're far too modest, Emmeline, Thomas turned to his sister. She cooked for her father and her brothers growing up, you see, and she knows all sorts of things about flavorings. Have you ever tried sprinkling salt on your meat? It really is quite delicious. Florence reached over and tugged eagerly at Emmeline's arm. I'll help you in the kitchen, Emmeline. The menu is already set. Besides the goose, the plan is to serve tomato soup, riced potatoes, buttered onions, and yeast rolls, plus Waldorf salad, mashed turnips, and currant jelly. Oh, and that's another thing Daisy has already made, the jelly. So really, there's nothing to it. When does Mother Grangerfield want dinner served? Emmeline asked, stalling. Could she roast a goose? <laughs> yes, of course she could. Anybody could. Roasting a goose was the easiest thing in the world. Really, nothing on the menu was too terribly complicated. Bringing everything to the table hot was the most difficult task of serving a feast, and to the best of Emmeline's knowledge, Daisy had never mastered that skill either, so no one would be expecting it. The guests arrive at two, and dinner is to be served at three, Florence informed her. That gives us five hours before company comes and six hours before the meal is meant to be on the table. Emmeline was in every regard perfectly capable of making this dinner, especially with Florence as her eager sous-chef. It might be fun, actually, to teach Florence something for once. Perhaps after she educated the girl about making potatoes, she could instruct her in the construction of an Ohio star. The question was, did Emmeline want to be seen as the sort of woman who could make this dinner? If it had only been Thomas's family who witnessed her in an apron, her hair curling from the steam of a boiling pot, she might not have minded. In fact, she quite liked the idea of saving the day. But the clovers would be there, and, more to the point, Millicent Clover would be there. Wouldn't she just love to see Emmeline consigned to the rank of servant, a scullery maid, a kitchen wench? She was composing a delicate but firm refusal when Thomas leaned over and whispered into her ear, It would make me so proud, darling. Besides, it's Christmas. It would be a wonderful gift for Mother, who I know would be eternally grateful. Would Mother Grangerfield truly be grateful that her new daughter-in-law was the sort of woman who could be gainfully employed as a boarding house cook? Emmeline had her doubts. I do worry about my dress, she whispered back, looking down at the charming garment 
that until this morning's gift of a new coat had been the most marvelous item in her closet. I wouldn't want to ruin it. It was rather expensive, after all. Though it had gotten a bit snug, she realized, but no need to mention that. If you get the tiniest spot of gravy on the collar, I'll buy you a new one, exactly the same as this one, Thomas promised. You can put on something of mine to cook in, Florence exclaimed, pulling Emmeline toward the stairs. I'm sure we can find something that fits. We're nearly the same height, after all. I'll dig out something raggedy so we won't have to worry about you mucking it up. Ten minutes later, bedecked in a plain black skirt and a rather worn, too tight blouse, Emmeline studied herself in Florence's full-length mirror. She was praying that she would have time to change back into her own clothes before the guest arrived, when Florence bustled into the room with a beautifully wrapped package in her arms. Mother has decided we'll exchange gifts after dinner, so I wrapped Thomas's quilt for you. You can mark that chore off your list. Emmeline paled. Oh, I, I thought I'd give that to Thomas privately when we returned home tonight. I gave him a pair of calfskin gloves this morning to throw him off the scent. He won't expect anything from me under the tree here. Oh, but you must, Emmeline. Oh, but I mustn't. Emmeline's voice was firm. She'd already given in against her will once this morning. She wasn't going to let it happen again. There was no way she would let Millicent Clover get within a mile of that quilt. Emmeline's status among the Milton Falls Society set, already shaky to begin with, would never recover. Florence's face fell. I'll leave it in the parlor for you, if you insist. Then, as though someone had waved a magic wand over her, she brightened again. Let's run to the kitchen, shall we? What a wonderful adventure we're about to have. It would most certainly be an adventure, Emmeline thought, as she followed Florence down the back stairs to the kitchen. She had her doubts, however, that there would be anything wonderful about it. The guest arrived at 2 p.m. to a house that smelled invitingly of roasted goose and yeast rolls fresh from the oven. Emmeline was in the foyer to receive them, having hastily shed her cook's clothes half an hour before. She'd taken a quick bath and emerged revived, no longer smelling of goose fat and tomato soup. She'd also managed to wash away the feeling that she belonged in the kitchen rather than the front of the house. She'd been at home among the pots and pans, just as she had as a girl cooking for her father and brothers. Cooking was part art, part craft, and part science, she'd learned over the years. There were several tricks to roasting a goose, for instance. You wanted a goose that found its way to the table with brown and crispy skin and a breast that was juicy when you sliced into it. It wasn't an easy job, but it was one that Emmeline knew how to do after many years of practice. Before putting the bird into the oven, she'd divested it of some of its fat. I know the menu has us eating riced potatoes, but roasted potatoes are so much more delicious 
especially when you roast them in goose fat, she informed Florence, who had merely shrugged at the suggestion. I'm not sure how much anyone cares, the girl admitted. We're rather used to bland meals. That might be fine for day-in and day-out dinners, but Christmas is meant for feasting. Florence nodded approvingly. I salute your efforts, Emmeline. Now, show me how to peel a potato. I'm just dying to give it a try. Emmeline felt a frisson of panic when it occurred to her that someone had to deliver the goose to the table so that Father Grangerfield could carve a few ceremonial slices before the bird was moved to the sideboard. Would she be expected to carry the goose on a platter into the dining room while the others ignored her the way they would ignore any serving girl? Would Millicent delicately avoid eye contact and barely disguise a smirk as Emmeline stood on the other side of the room dealing out platefuls of goose? Oh, the news would be all over town by New Year's Day. Emmeline Grangerfield, maid, not matron. Fortunately, Daisy's sisters, Anna and Matilda, had been hired weeks before to serve the meal, and their 1.30 arrival relieved Emmeline of her kitchen duties. Please don't mention that I had anything to do with this, she instructed the women before stealing up the back staircase to turn herself into Cinderella. The Cinderella of the second part of the story, that is, the one who went to the ball and caught the prince's eye. She'd never thought of herself as a figure in a fairy tale, Emmeline mused as she undressed for her bath, perhaps because no one had ever cast a spell over her or sprinkled her with fairy dust. She'd worked hard to become the woman she was, and the rewards for doing so had been immense. Still, she'd enjoyed feeling useful this morning. She'd even enjoyed, for the briefest of moments, Mother Grangerfield's wide-eyed expression when the older woman had come into the kitchen a little before noon. What is this marvelous smell? The older woman had wondered as she looked around the array of plates and pans and dishes. Why doesn't the kitchen smell like this every day? In spite of the compliment, Emmeline had ducked her head. Yes, the kitchen did smell marvelous, and it was all a result of her artistry at the stove. But she feared that Mother Grangerfield would forget that Emmeline was her daughter-in-law and not a servant on loan from a neighbor, merely some common woman with exceptional skills. Her emotions ricocheted back and forth this way all morning, yet in spite of her fears, Emmeline felt rather proud of being the sort of woman who could prepare a Christmas feast. It was nice to be useful, she thought, even if no one else could ever know about it. Not a word was spoken during the first ten minutes of the meal. Instead, the guests ate without ceasing, the air filled with the clatter and scraping of silverware. Rolls were passed in silence, Fingers were raised to signal when a plate needed refilling. When Father Grangerfield finally announced that this must be the best Christmas dinner in all of Milton Falls, everyone stared at him 
as though startled at being told something so extravagantly obvious. And then, much to Emmeline's dismay, Andrew Spinner raised his glass. I'd like to pay my compliments to the chef. Bring the cook out so we can thank her for the wonderful meal. Emmeline gave Florence a panicked look, and Florence put her finger to her lips in reply, as though to say, Mum's the word. Mother Grangerfield bit into a yeast roll, perhaps to avoid being queried as to Daisy's whereabouts, and Father Grangerfield, not a man inclined to mirth, all the same gave Emmeline a quick wink. Relief surged through her. She would not be fed to the jackals to be torn apart limb by limb. Not by her in-laws, in any event. No, it was her husband who delivered her to the beasts. I can't keep a secret any longer. My Emmeline is the author of this feast, he exclaimed proudly. When she learned that our cook Daisy was out with the flu, she stepped right up and saved the day. Aren't you the lucky one, Grangerfield? Andrew turned and gave Emmeline an appreciative look. She's a beauty and a chef. In my experience, the two rarely go hand in hand. Poor Emmeline, Millicent lamented, her voice dripping with both sympathy and scorn. Not an easy trick, Emmeline thought. Put to work on Christmas Day. Well, I suppose it's not the first time it's happened, poor dear. My guess is that back in Kansas City, Emporia, Emmeline corrected her. I'm from Emporia, not Kansas City. Millicent waved a dismissive hand. Yes, yes, in any event, you've clearly got a talent for cooking. You must show me how sometime. I haven't the faintest idea how one roasts a carrot, much less an entire goose. Yes, Emmeline, please do show Millie how to cook a goose, Andrew agreed, and there was something in his voice that suggested there were other skills he thought Millicent might learn from her. Emmeline ignored him. Instead, she carefully studied the lace that edged the right sleeve of her dress. Tatting was an acceptable pastime in Milton Falls, in spite of its connection to the Irish. Lace was delicate and beautiful and entirely ornamental. That seemed to be the role of a rich woman in this place as well, to be as ornamental as possible, like one of the crystal snowflakes that dangled from the Grangerfield's elegant Christmas tree in the next room. So pretty, Emmeline amused, and so utterly useless. After Daisy's small cakes had been eaten and coffee poured into Dimitas cups, the party made its way to the living room, where the members of the family would exchange token gifts. Emmeline had embroidered handkerchiefs for Mother and Father Grangerfield and had found a delightful little beaded bag for Florence. She doubted these gifts were enough to restore her reputation as a typical bride with typical tastes and skills, but certainly they wouldn't provide fuel for gossip, and for that she was grateful. As she took a seat on the divan, Emmeline suddenly felt exhausted and, if truth be told, a bit queasy. 
Too much goose fat on the potatoes? No, she didn't think so. They'd been perfect, crisp on the outside and pillowy soft on the inside. Perhaps she was just tired after a long day in front of the stove. It was in the next moment, as Thomas took a seat beside her and Florence sat down in front of the tree, clearly eager to start opening presents, that Emmeline was struck by the realization that it had been some weeks before she'd had her last time. In fact, it had been two months. That might explain the queasiness, which, come to think of it, she'd felt every morning and some evenings for the last little while. It might also explain why her dress, which she'd had made in September in anticipation of cooler weather, felt so tight. She was going to have a baby. A baby! Finally, there would be someone in this town other than Thomas and Florence who loved her. Don't forget Martha Leary, she reminded herself, and Felicity Matson and all the other quilters in the back room. Well, they might not love Emmeline, but they liked her and found her interesting. They'd helped her quilt Thomas's quilt. Emmeline leaned back and smiled to herself. Should she tell Thomas on the walk home tonight? Or should she wait until she gave him the quilt to give him the good news as well? Before she had a chance to decide, Florence pulled a beautifully wrapped package from under the tree. The same beautifully wrapped package she'd shown Emmeline earlier in the day. Emmeline wanted to order Florence to put the package back to insist once again that now wasn't the right time, that she wanted Thomas to open it later. But before she had a chance to say a word, Thomas leaned over and whispered into her ear, You really are the most remarkable woman, my dear. Well, she was, wasn't she? After all, she was the woman who had made the quilt inside that box, a quilt Emily knew that Thomas would love. He would see how the stars shimmered and danced against the dark blue sky of the fabric and admire the constellation of stitches that bound the quilt's layers together. She also knew how it would please him to show the quilt to his family and friends gathered around the tree. He'd present it as one more piece of evidence that he'd married an excellent woman. Emmeline took a deep breath as she watched Florence come forward and place the box in her lap. Everyone's eyes were upon her. Her in-laws, great-aunt Amanda, cousin John, and, most piercingly, Millicent Clover, who Emmeline suddenly knew would never befriend her, no matter what she did or didn't do. Poor Millicent, destined to live such an uncreative life, Emmeline thought, and then she turned to Thomas. Merry Christmas, darling, she said as she handed him his gift. I made this especially for you. Thanks for joining us on the Quilt Fiction Story Guild podcast, a production of Milton Falls Media Incorporated, all rights reserved. 
Until next time, this is Francis O'Rourke Dow. Thank you for joining us.